This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1984. Kalima protects us. We are her children. We pledge our devotion to her with an offering of flesh and blood and podcasts. The movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm an actor, comedian, director, writer. I love movies and I love talking about movies with my friend, the amazing writer who often reviews films for the New York Times, Amy Nicholson. Amy, I can't wait. I, I, have, a, I, I have Indiana Jones fever going back through the catalog to watch this. I was really pumped. Have you seen Dial of Destiny yet? No, I've been putting it off. I want to see it big, 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 and I couldn't make the one critic screening. Okay, well, I still have hope that we will get Indiana Jones off on his final adventure with a wistful eye and and be happy with the way it ends. But I have to tell you, after Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's kind of been shaky for Indy. Now, we did Raiders of the Lost Ark on this show. You can go back and listen to that episode. It's a really fun episode. And that movie, I think you could make a very strong argument for to be on the list of a hundred best films of all time. It, it is just, I think, you know, next to Jaws, a, a movie that kind of defines what summer movies are. You know, this big spectacle, great acting, great characters. It, it kind of brings back the serial, but... Yeah, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. To me, it is on that list of movies that are flawless. Yeah. Really hard to find a flaw in this movie. And I've spent so long deeply thinking about it. In that Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, I think I even told you about how I spent like... Weeks on the set of people who are remaking the uh, airplane flight and the airplane explosion where the guy gets his head torn off, shot for shot, in the hot sun, in Mississippi. I feel like I have this movie tattooed on my soul as well. There's there's movies I have tattooed on my soul, and one of them is Raiders. But that is actually not how I feel about Temple. So I'm nervous about this episode. I had to, like, really fortify myself with horrible things, uh, monkey brains, to really get my energy up for this. Because here's the thing. I feel like in this episode— If Indiana Jones's greatest fear is snakes, my greatest fear is recognizing the moments in which I can be inconsistent and hypocritical. And Temple of Doom does so many things that I keep saying I think sequels and kids movies should do. And yet 
I really struggle with this movie. This is going to be a hard episode for me, Paul. I'm scared. No, you know, Amy, I've really put Temple of Doom on a shelf. And I probably raised it up a little bit after seeing Crystal Skull, but I haven't really gone back and revisited this film in a long time. And I'm so glad that I have because I realized that this movie is kind of tattooed on my soul. This is a movie that meant a lot to me for multiple reasons. I think really, honestly, the the reason why this movie made such an effect on me was how scary and violent it was. This is a PG movie, right? And the PG-13 rating happened because of this movie, because it was so dark. It was so violent. Like, if you think about it, Jaws, if it came out now, it would be PG-13. But because it came back in the 70s, it's PG. So this was a movie that was really important in, in dividing PG and R. And for many a good reason. But can you actually guess what the first PG-13 movie was? Oh, wait, I'm curious. Because we know that it can't be Temple of Doom. Because the odd, wonderful fact about it creating the PG-13 is it didn't get one itself. It's still a PG movie. It is still a PG movie. Amazing. It narrowly slipped (laughs) through the cracks like a hand going through the chest and ripping out a heart. Uh, No, it's not that. But I'll give you a hint. Um, I'm a huge Clipper fan. And when I was hosting uh, Paul George's uh, show, I should say, directing Paul George's uh, show, I asked him, I said, PG-13, what's the first PG-13 movie? And here's my hint. It would be a great colorway for your next sneaker. Wait, hold on. I'm just realizing for the first time that he is PG-13. Oh, yeah. I love that for him. Oh, I love great. that for him. It's good a job. great nickname. It's a good name. It's a good one. Wow. I mean, my poor beloved Austin Reeves, he hates it when people call him AR-15 because it's, Ooh. you know, too gun-like, and he's yeah. he's not all about that life, he says. No, yeah, that is a, ooh, that's a rough one. That's a rough nickname to have. But okay, your time is up. Let me take up. a guess. This is a movie with yeah. kids and guns, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, that seems good. Kids and guns. It's not that movie where the little kids all play mafia people. No, Bugsy Malone, that, no, yeah. they shoot people with pies in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I give up. You tell me. All right, it is Patrick Swayze's Red Dawn. Oh, That yeah. was the first one, okay? And that came out, you know, and then... The second one was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh-huh. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, the second one that came out was really like a retcon moment for the first one. Because I would argue that Last Crusade is nowhere near PG-13, but who yeah. knows? I, it's a different time. We were being protective. But it is funny. You'd be like, that one's PG, that one's PG-13. What? I know. Well, I think the PG-13 is now just the staple rating. Do you know the the old Hollywood story or the adage of Hollywood. I like this. You can't make a good PG movie. Huh. Prove me wrong. Is there a good PG movie? The Princess Bride. Well, I, let's do modern. Because <laughs> I don't know when The Princess Bride came out when PG-13 was available. Oh, okay. Touche. Oh, no. It's hard. It's a very hard thing. So why don't you actually hit up the Discord and prove us wrong? Give us a great PG movie. Anything past, let's say... 2010. I think that's the way to do it. 2010 and beyond. Give us a great PG movie because now I think everything is PG-13. That's all the Marvel movies and everything below that exists more in the animated space. But I want a live action PG movie. Dun, dun, dun. Gauntlet thrown. People holding onto that bridge for dear life. If we're throwing a gauntlet, let's throw a Sankara stone. Let's get some fortune and glory. And Amy, let's unspool it.
The year is 1984, and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are in a mood. Life couldn't be better, or at least busier. Everything they've done since Raiders in 1981 has cemented their status as the king hitmakers of Hollywood. Their reaction to E.T. was out of this world. Money, Oscar nominations, instant legend status— and the Star Wars trilogy has just finished and sold like a gazillion tickets and people are just buying a million little Ewoks. But also, life couldn't be worse. Spielberg and Lucas are both heartbroken dudes right now. First, Spielberg lost his girlfriend Amy Irving to, rumor has it, Willie Nelson. Then, while he was dealing with the tragedy of the deaths of the two child actors on the set of The Twilight Zone, a movie that he executive produced and really shouldered a lot of that fallout, he lost his rebound girlfriend, Kathleen Carey, right after he told the press that they were thinking about having kids. Oof. And then Lucas just lost his wife, his collaborator, Marsha Lucas, after 15 years of marriage, during which Marsha has edited, shaped his biggest hits. And she finally thought, hey, man, now we can finally relax. We can travel. We can have some fun. But Lucas didn't want to travel. And Lucas didn't want to be, let's say, romantic in the adult way and Marsha finally just says oh yeah he, he he seems to not be so into that and so finally Marsha's like she says quote she just couldn't stand the darkness any longer and it is in this moment of darkness that these two filmmakers Spielberg and Lucas decide that it is time to make a very very dark Indiana Jones okay well let's get into it Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom takes our hero archaeologist to India with his new kid friend Short Round future Oscar winner Kikoi Kwan to steal back a mystical stone from a violent thuggy cult who poisons brains and rips out hearts. It's a movie that shoves both halves of Spielberg and Lucas's giddy and miserable moods together. There's outlandish, like look at us action, an airplane crash that cuts into a ski slope solemn, which cuts into a cliff plunge, which cuts into a river rapids adventure. And then the movie culminates on a suspension bridge. And if there's a suspension bridge, there's got to be man-eating alligators underneath it. And a lot of people think this movie is just plain mean, right? Instead of the cool, hard-drinking Marion Ravenwood, our leading lady here is kind of just screamy and whiny. She's a nightclub singer, Willie Scott. And honestly, it feels like both filmmakers are kind of saying a little bit about the women in their lives, but also saying, you know what? We make hits, so uh, we can do anything we want, right? I mean, or as Willie Scott sings in the beginning. Anything goes. Now, Willie and Indiana do not get along at all. They never seem to have any sort of genuine conversation. But at the end of the movie, he pulls her in with his whip and they have a big kiss. And you know what they say? Anything goes. <laughs> also, let me just note that Willie, the most annoying character that Spielberg has ever created, happens to share a name and a profession with Willie Nelson. Oh. Spielberg claims that Willie is also just the name of his dog, but I'm going to leave that coincidence right here. Temple of Doom opens on May 23rd, 1984, and it made money, it made critics mad, and it made the MPAA create a new rating the PG-13. We'll get into that later, but what was in the zeitgeist that weekend? The number one song on the Billboard charts was about cheering for a man who might not be no Romeo, a man who thrives as a one-man show, 
A man who, what he does, he does so well, he makes a girl want to yell and yell and yell and yell and yell until we in the audience cannot take it anymore. It is Denise Williams, and let's hear it for the boy. A footloose classic right there. Look at that. I mean, 84 was the year of great movies. I mean, truly banger after banger. And I have to say, if you were to ask me what my favorite Indiana Jones film is, I probably would put this lower on the list. But I got to say, sheer, you're misguided, you dum-dum. This movie is actually great. Oh, no. Really? (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I can't wait to get into it with you. You don't like this movie? I mean, it has everything that you would possibly love. Like what? It's super dark. They treat kids badly. It's not trying to be a blockbuster, but yet it is. The visuals are amazing. Harrison Ford is probably at his coolest here. And I have to disagree with you about Willie Scott being the most annoying character. She is comic relief And every time she gets on camera, she scores with a big joke. I mean, I really do believe they built this character for laughs because the rest of the movie is so dark. Oh, my gosh. I cannot laugh at anything Willie Scott does. I find her so embarrassing as a female. And sure, I don't want to make this like a tedious episode where I'm like, Willie Scott is not a feminist hero because Kate Capshaw has dealt with this enough. Kate Capshaw has been like, Yeah, sure. She's not much more than a dumb screaming blonde, but also it's an action movie. What do you want? But it's also she's a nightclub singer in Shanghai. Like, how else do you expect her to react when an owl lands on a branch or like an iguana jumps out of a bush? Like, she's the only person who's reacting like real people. I expect a woman who is a major celebrity from what we know she's recognized on site by Dan Aykroyd. Who lives in Shanghai. Who is brave enough, brave enough to leave America, brave enough to leave the Midwest and move to Shanghai. I expect her to be a little tougher than the scream machine. She's a failure. She's a failure. Willie Scott is not an American celebrity. She is someone who couldn't hack it in Hollywood and went to Shanghai to perform at a restaurant. I mean, this is not like... Oh, she's got so much power and pizzazz. She's like, I need a job. She goes there. The only reason why Dan Aykroyd knows because he looks like he's hanging out at those kind of clubs too. Oh, you're the American singer. Yeah, she's probably the only American singer in Shanghai. It's not like she's at a giant concert venue. This is not even Steven Seagal playing Russia. Willie Scott is straight up low tier dinner theater. Hence, played perfectly. But she's also written in a way where we are supposed to dislike her. Like, one of the first things we've realized about her is just that she is kind of completely delusional. Like, they go through this whole, 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 like, opening chase where she's, like, trying to catch a diamond, not caring about this poison, putting the poison in her cleavage, always been in awe of anybody who can store anything in their cleavage. 
And then when he's trying to get out a vial that she knows is poison and he is poisoned, she's immediately like, oh no, I'm not that kind of girl. Where's the antidote? Listen, I just mentioned Give me. <laughs> oh, I'm not that kind of girl. Hey, Dr. Joe, no time for love. We got company. And then right from there, she's like, you can't take your eyes off of me. And us in the audience, through the logic of cinema, are thinking, lady, he's barely looked at you once. He stuck a whole knife in your ribs and he didn't even care. He didn't even look at your face. He has not cared. And so she's written in a way to make her a delusional egotist who I find incredibly annoying. Okay, let's look at this movie as a straight-up sequel, a sequel that Lawrence Kasdan did not want to be involved in at all. When he heard the idea, he's like, this is too mean. I don't like it. You guys are being dicks. Yeah, and this is a guy who would go on and make body heat at the same time. He has no problem with a blonde femme fatale. Okay, but hear me out in my defense of Willie Scott. Ladies and gentlemen of the cinema jury, let me talk to you about why (laughs) Willie Scott, I think, is an interesting character in the world of a sequel. We already had Marion Ravenwood, who was Indiana Jones's equal. I think that this movie does so much, and there's so much exposition that needs to come out. And there are so many different cultures on screen. You have to think about 1984. We haven't seen this kind of culture in mainstream film. I don't think... Most people are familiar with this culture of India, not that the thuggy culture is the culture of India, but going into this world besides like out of Africa or Gandhi. And I know I just quoted Africa as India, but I'm saying, but our eyes weren't open to giant things in the world, I think in 1984 in mainstream cinema. So she's brought in a to heighten the female lead. She couldn't be cooler than Marion. So let's make her a lay person, somebody who is going to be freaked out when they're served food. Somebody who's going to be freaked out when guns are going off. Like she is the audience. And I think what's really great about that is it continually underlines how much peril Indiana Jones is in because this movie is constantly putting you in top that, top that, top that. Every moment of this movie. And I think without that, it becomes too cool. Like it becomes like what John Wick is. And I love John Wick, but John Wick, no one in that world reacts to anything. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. This is a giant fight we're going to have in a club during the rain and he's going to get his neck broken. No one's like, holy fuck shit. Like, you know, and I think that this movie does a great job of balancing humor and it's weird and it's slapsticky, but everything that she does is for comedic effect. And I don't think it's for like whiny woman effect. I think she happens to be a woman and she happens to be a lay person, but I don't think it's as mean to women as you could read it, in my opinion. Well, I think a few things. Okay. One, you're not alone in this because Pauline Kale, who I believe we read her review on our Raiders of the Lars Ark episode because she hated it, genuinely loved Temple of Doom and actually really, 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 really liked Billy. She said, Kate won me over. Her low comedy brazenness, the whole conception of Willie as uncouth give the picture an additional layer of parody. Instead of being a pallid little darling in distress, she's a broad in distress in the situations gained from her noisy wholesomeness. 
I'm taking a, a huge honor in this. This feels really <laughs> uh, amazing that I could agree with Pauline Kael. All right. Savor that. Savor that. I will. I'm glad I you guys have each other at this moment in time. But I will also say it's not just that she's noisy and it's not just that she's screamy. It's that the entire conception of her is so dumb. You, an audience surrogate, I want to believe, Paul, I want to believe in you that if you got on an elephant, you would get on it the right way and not fall off it backwards and not try to spray it with perfume. I believe that you could sit in a float I and not, not fall off the float in still water. I'm not I a 1930s showgirl, Amy. It's we gotta You're go not 1930s. far away from a 1930s showgirl. Think, I've seen your gams. You can dance. By the way, I put the put the microscope on on some of the women that we've seen in movies that take place in the 1930s. Like this is I. I think you're putting a 1984 mentality on a character that is of her time. Oh, I am not. I am not. There were okay. some cool-ass women in the 1930s. You want to get me started on, like, the thin man? You want to get me even started on the African queen? They try to relate this movie to Catherine Hepburn and the African yes. queen. We've seen African queen. She's tough. She rises to the occasion. And then Indiana Jones, a man who we respect, a man who we respect in his love affair with Marion, just as soon as she stops talking for 30 seconds is like, okay, let's bone. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. So as a scientist, you do a lot of research? Always. And what sort of research would you do on me? Nocturnal activities. You mean like what sort of cream I put on my face at night? What position I like to sleep in? Mating customs. Love rituals? Primitive sexual practices. So you're an authority in that area? Years of field work. I don't blame you for being sore at me. I can be hard to handle. I've had worse. But you'll never have better. Can I defend that for one second? Indiana Jones is a fucking cad. That's what I love about this. Like... It's not like he loves Willie Scott. He wants to fuck her. And and while that's probably not the version of Indiana Jones that we think of, that's why they broke up in the first place. He hasn't seen her in ages when he goes back to her. Like, he was dating a 16-year-old. He was dating a child. And we were like, oh, yeah, he just falls. He wants the hotness. He's like, you know what? Now we're in this castle. Uh, may, maybe uh, I'll just get laid. I, I feel like there's an energy to him that people don't want to acknowledge in this movie that is very true to form. I mean, I do want to acknowledge it. I just think it's badly done. This is a movie whose conception of eroticism and sex seems so childish. Seems like the idea of what sex is here is just two grown-ups pouting at each other. Two grown-ups just sulking. And that's why when Marsha Lucas is like, Yo, George Lucas wouldn't fuck me. I had to have an affair with the guy who like did the stained glass in our house. I'm like, wow, I get it. That comes from a very trashy book, but that's what I read. I'll take it. You know, we'll talk about Willie Scott some more, but I think that let's just talk about the scope of this movie. You know, we touched on it in the beginning. This movie opens up with this great number, a Willie Scott number, which we've already played for you. I think it looks great. And I think it sets the tone for what we're going to be seeing in a way. Like it's a little bit more ethereal, a little bit more fantasy. That world that we see is uniquely foreign to an American audience. That opening number is a song that we know, 
but in a different language. So it's like, here's something you know, but it's going to be unfamiliar to you as well. And I feel like that's setting the tone of the entire movie. It's like, get ready for something you like, but very different. And then we go into this opening sequence and we know this movie is going to go differently. The minute Indiana Jones picks up a flaming skewer of duck or whatever was on there and then launches it into that man's chest. That moment as a kid, by the way, I've realized I know more lines to this movie than I know to most films, maybe because this was the first VHS that I remember being 1999. I bought it and watched it over and over and over again. But that moment when that flaming skewer goes boom right into his chest, you're like, oh shit, this is not like the fun indie. This is a dark indie, but yet they're constantly keeping the fun alive. And I think what you were talking about with the diamond and the ice chase and the kicking of the antidote, everything in that scene, it's so well-directed in a way. I think this is Spielberg at the height of his action directing because this movie on every level looks great. Like the action is just photographed so, so well and it keeps it paced and comical. And it's one of those things that you see missing in so many movies that try to be Indiana Jones. Like you don't see this kind of editing, that frenetic, fun, quick cuts with the right music and the right energy. I don't know. There's something about it in watching this. I was like, this is what we're missing. It's not about the lead actor. It's about this style of directing. Well, I'm with you halfway. I think this intro is Half well-directed. Okay. I'll say what I like first. I like where they're sitting at the Lazy Susan and they're having this negotiation, the kind of pacing of rolling things back and forth across the table to each other as they're talking about antidotes and and ashes and real-life emperors who have died. There's this control there and this patience that I really, really, really like. And I do think that Spielberg, at his best, can have such a mastery of holding on to what the audience is thinking of and then yes-anding it. So she's looking around the floor, skittering after diamonds, and then when he throws that ice on top of it, you're just like, oh, that's great. That's so wonderful. You're with him every single step of the way. You feel kind of like that collective groan of delight. However, then he just gets bigger and bigger. And I think like when he starts dropping balloons on the floor, that's just an example of like making the scene bigger and harder without any inner logic. Why are there balloons? Why are they getting dropped? And then I start getting distracted in the scene by how bad I actually think the action is. It isn't choreographed in the John Wick style. And I will give them empathy for that because Harrison Ford's back was being thrown out most of this entire movie and he couldn't do a lot of the stunts. But the punches and the kicks and the shooting, they're just stitched. You cut from one, you cut to the other. You cut from one, you cut to the other. And that I don't find thrilling in the slightest. See, I disagree because I think that he has this style, especially in this movie, where it is frenetic. And maybe it is because Harrison Ford threw out his back and had to get spinal surgery because of the fight that he had with the giant thuggy guard. The same guy that he had the fight with in the first one, Pat Roach. That's the same uh, like stunt guy actor who gets his head torn off by the plane. Wait, I th- oh, wow. That's amazing. They just dressed him up differently. But I do think that this movie uses action here as comedy. And knowing that Raiders, one of the things that I noticed here was they really are playing up the broadness of the serial. And you can see that in that one scene mid-film where Willie Scott's in her bedroom and Indiana Jones is in his bedroom. And they're going back and forth. The blocking of that, the way that it 
it kind of flies between the two of them is all really for comedy. And what we were saying before about Willie Scott being whiny, that scene where she's doing that physical comedy of running into all the creatures in the woods while Indiana Jones and Short Round play cards, I think also is that. Like, I think he's trying something here that is a little more camera is comedian or camera is making the jokes because this movie works differently if it's not cut the way it was. I, I do think it was intentional and he was trying to capture a spirit and a tone of these movies because every about five minutes we get a cliffhanger kind of ending. I do think it's intentional. I just think sometimes he does the thing where he leans into the joke at the expense of everything else that should be underpinning the scene. You know, like when they're cutting back and forth and then Indiana gets strangled by the thuggy. This is about thuggies because the movie that they're really leaning to as a touchstone is Gunga Din. You know, there's like Cary Grant, Douglas Fairbanks movie, others directed by George Stevens, a director that we've come to know really, really, really well. Like he did Swing Time, he did Shane, he did A Place in the Sun, and he did Gunga Din, which is like one of those gigantic classic adventures. And the villain in that is the thuggies. Thuggies, by the way, if you haven't guessed it by now, it is the group where the word thugs comes from. And the story with thuggies is that they were said to be born from the sweat of the goddess Kali. What they would do in India is they would pretend to be travelers and then they'd befriend people when they were on the road. They'd pretend to be whatever they needed to get along. You know, they'd be like Hindu if they were supposed to be. They'd be Muslim if they were supposed to be. Whatever would help them earn people's trust. And then at night, they would strangle their victims and steal all of their stuff. And they would very often steal the children too and then train them to be future thuggies. They drug people with sacred plants. They would feed corpses to crocodiles. Uh, Stories about the thuggies as these boogeymen kind of go back all the way to the 1300s. And there's just written accounts throughout Indian history. The British, when they colonized India, spent a lot of time trying to like track them down and exterminate them. They use the existence of thuggies to create a law called the Criminal Tribes Act, which basically allowed the British to just say, whole communities of people are probably criminals and we can treat you however you want. But today... People are starting to raise this question, were thuggies even ever real? Or were they like uh, the equivalent of a Facebook post from your uncle about, look out, there's these cars who pretend to be cops and they're going to pull you over and murder you on a dark highway. So that is all of the backstory when we have that scene at the dinner table where Indiana is talking about thuggies and are the thuggies here and are the thuggies rule and have they actually been extinguished by the British? You know, they refer to like this big revolution in 1853, which was actually true when the Indian people tried to revolt against the British and the British just ended up slamming down the hammer and really taking over a lot of temples and shutting them down. Dr. Jones, you know perfectly well the Thuggy cult has been dead for nearly a century. Yes, of course. Thuggy was an obscenity that worshipped Kali with human sacrifices. The British army nicely did away with them. Well, I suppose stories of the thuggy die hard. There are no stories anymore. I'm not so sure. So this movie is definitely, like, you know, aware of a lot of that history. I I feel like you can hear the tension of colonialism in that scene where the prime minister, before we know he's evil, is talking to the British guy who's just sort of shown up also at the palace. This is Captain Bloombert, 11th Pooner Rifles. And you, sir, are Dr. Jones, I presume. I am, Captain. Captain Blumbert and his troops are on a routine inspection tour. The British find it amusing to inspect us at their convenience. 
I do hope, sir, that it's not uh, inconvenient to you, uh, sir. The British worry, sir, about their empire. Makes us all feel like well-cared-for children. But then one of the things I find kind of funny and strange and ironic and confusing and sort of head-scrambling about this movie is that it's like, you're treating us like children. Yes. The Maharaja is a literal child. Okay. And you just can't quite get your footing on this movie and if they have anything to say about politics at all. Kind of doesn't feel like they do. It just feels like they're there. But I would argue this movie does offer up the idea that the thuggies don't exist, right? Because when the leader, Molaram, is talking to Indiana Jones, when he has him tied up and he's about to give him the blood of Kali, it feels to me like the way the Nazis felt in the first film. They're trying to get to some place, right? They're trying to start the thuggy organization. I don't know if it feels like this has been going on as much as this is a zealot trying to restart something that they heard. Does that well, make right. sense? Well, yeah, no, right. it does. Yeah, like this clip right here where he's talking about his goal of religious domination. The British in India will be slaughtered. Then we will overrun the Muslims. Then the Hebrew God will fall. And then the Christian God will be cast down and forgotten. Soon, Kaliba will rule the world. And I want to say there's part of me in that moment that's like kind of fair it's hard not to say that like the other religions have dominated other religions throughout history and maybe there's time for payback, especially the Christian religion. I don't know. I feel like they've been here. They've just been underground, like literally underground. Yes, but at the same time, they haven't been underground. They took the kids. They stole the kids. They stole the Sankara stone. They have been trying to put this back to get these five stones together. And if they get the five stones, then they would have this power. I don't know. I think some of it is like the power of the Ark. What is the power of the Ark? I think it's like a believer in a mystical religion trying to get it to give him ultimate power. I do think that this movie does an interesting job of not making fun of Indian culture. And I and I, I want to be gentle in the way that I say that. Because yes, do they have this meal that is just like, ew, ew. Uh, uh, you know, but at the same time, everyone they come across show themselves to be incredibly smart. I think everyone's playing to their their height of their intelligence. And I think that, again, going back to our Willie Scott conversation, you have Indiana Jones, who's so respectful to this culture and so inclusive to them and understands what they're going for. And yeah, we hear that right in this yeah. in, the, in the scene where he's like, eat this food. I can't eat this. That's more food than these people eat in a week. They're starving. Well, I'm sorry. You can have eat it. it. I'm not hungry. <laughs> you're insulting them and you're embarrassing me. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. And mind you, that's not the bugs. That's just the goo. The early goo. The early goo from the villagers. I think that there is a respect of the culture while also exploring a mythology of the culture, which may or may not be true. Same thing could be said for the Ark. I mean, I would love to see it that way, but I really struggle with that because, you know, for every moment of, yes, show respect by eating the food, which I think is really smart and is really lovely. When you look at the food, 
the production designer made a point of making it really gross, even in that early scene. You know, it's not just like rice or lentils or grains or beans. It's some sort of unidentified clear black goo, which is a, a food color that it's, is not seen. And the sound design is just horrible. So it's like they're extending an olive branch and then taking it away. And I, I, I don't know. I don't love seeing the way the villagers are in this movie. You know, even even the friendly ones are sort of shot as like a mass of people kind of like pawing and touching them and like needing help, just needing help, needing help, needing help. They're sort of a blob of humanity. And then the few that do accompany Indiana Jones on this quest part of the way, as soon as in the movie world, they get scared off by seeing like a skeleton with holding like a skull and another skull. And Same another thing skull happened skull. in Raiders. Right. They just run away again. So there's this idea of like, they're sending Indiana Jones to do the work that they're afraid to do. I think it's a tricky line to walk. When you see this village, they're decimated, right? They are completely destroyed. They didn't need his help before. They needed his help when this totem was taken, right? And they've already lost all their children. They've lost all their children to this. So you can imagine on some level emotionally where they are. And I think that as Americans, we're looking at that and going, oh, gross. But I don't think it's like, we eat cow shit here, you know? And I, I know what you're saying. Yes, it looks gross. I, I've traveled to Africa. I've eaten things off of plates in a giant, you know, look, it looks, yes, it had a yellow color to it. And we are in, you know, eating all are in a hut. And this is when I was uh, doing some charity work out in villages, like hours away from Senegal. I, I think that they captured that vibe. I will say what makes this movie really kind of damning or what unites this movie in an interesting way is children, right? This is not a village. It's like, oh, we need to have our crops grow. It's like, we want our children back. Like, yes, and the crops, but their children were stolen. And that's why I love that in this movie, Indiana Jones has this sidekick who is a kid. And I know that that seems crazy and it feels like a part of that feels like, oh, Everyone in Hollywood got the wrong lesson from this. Short Round is crucial to this story. Short Round needs to be here because you need a kid to, I think, activate Indiana Jones on some level. I think there's a lot of things going on here that become crucial. I think where Hollywood is like bastardized this is they're like, oh, the best way to get a bigger audience is to put a kid in there. Now, who was my favorite character when I saw Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom? Short Round, one million percent. I don't think Spielberg and Lucas were like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it's just a kid who's his sidekick? I think that they need a kid to tell the story. And if we want to go back to Willie Scott and Marion Ravenwood, we have to also say kind of a dick dad, too, because what happened to Short Round? We never hear about Short Round. He's all upset about Mutt in the last one. We never even sheds a tear for Short Round. Well, yeah. And if you want to read this movie as like the ultimate divorce film fucked up daddy issue thing. I mean, this is essentially a movie where a couple is thrown together in this whirlwind. Uh, he picks up a girl at a nightclub. Suddenly there's a kid involved. There's awkward family dinners, hearts getting literally ripped out. Like what a symbol of divorce. And then Indiana gets drunk on something and hits the kid. That is 
beat huh. by beat things that happen in this movie. Um, and, <laughs> what and, you a know, dark way of looking at that. You uh, know, yes. but like this movie is so dark. I think it encourages looking dark into it. And I want to say, if you love this movie, I don't want to spend this podcast ripping on it. I just really want to tear it apart because it, in the lovingest way, tear, tear apart intellectually. Because I do think it's a really interesting movie to look at, just to analyze, to kind of think, this is the movie, you know, quite openly, that Spielberg finds to be like the movie that he is not really proud of. Even Lucas was like, this didn't turn out the way they wanted. I think we went darker than any of us really wanted to go. But you're in the middle of it and you're doing things and it's, it's a matter of what you do every moment. And you don't realize what has happened until you put it all together and you see it as one piece. Because you do a little dark thing here, and then you do a light thing, and then you do another little dark thing, and then you do another little dark thing, and then pretty soon you put it together and you realize, uh-oh, it's darker than it is light. And this stuff is stronger than we thought of it as. But, I, you know, I don't mind the film. We definitely wanted to make a different movie from, from Raiders. We didn't want to just do the same movie over again. You know, of all the Raider indie films, Temple of Doom is my least favorite. I mean, I, I look back on Temple of Doom and I say, well... The greatest thing that I got out of that movie was I met Kate Capshaw and we were married years later and that to me was the reason I think it was fated that I make Temple of Doom. And so even though Indiana Jones wound up getting the girl, I really did. And so I think it's really interesting to go through this film and kind of see how did this movie become what it is? You know, how did it become such a strange tonal thing that if you love this movie genuinely, I am genuinely happy for you. But also, it's one of the weirdest blockbusters that has ever been made. Well, let's also just for a second, just drill into one thing. I watched an interview with uh, Lucas and Spielberg on the uh, features that are on the iTunes release. And Spielberg says when they were on that beach, when they were coming up with the story for Raiders, Lucas said to him, if you do this, you got to direct the second one and probably the third one too. Spielberg came into this not wanting to do a sequel. And I think what you get here is Spielberg realizing, all right, how do I want to do my sequels so I challenge myself? And he could have made another Raiders. But this, I think he's experimenting with comedy. I think he's pushing on the weird ideas that we will see eventually from Spielberg, the darker ideas, because Spielberg now has transitioned in many ways to becoming a more adult director and dealing with darker themes and topics. As a challenge, he grappled with this differently. And it, yes, it reflects something, and maybe he feels like, oh, I didn't do it right, but does he think, oh, Crystal Skull is more in the vein of it? Because I feel like Crystal Skull is trying to recapture what he thinks Raiders is. Whereas I like the idea of a filmmaker growing with the franchise, going, what do I want to do next? Not how do I repeat myself? And Spielberg is one of those directors where I think when he does fall into the repetition, it's not fun. Um, I think that when you watch Ready Player One, it feels like a best of of Spielberg in a way. Like, I think everyone was so excited, like, oh, we're going to get Popcorn Spielberg. But Popcorn Spielberg may be gone. And that's okay. Um, I think this is his first waving of the flag and saying, yeah, I, I am not exactly what you want me to be. I want to push us to get the PG-13 rating. I mean, this movie, I want to speak about that too. Like this movie was big. PG-13 came out when I was younger than 13, or maybe I was just about the right age. I don't know, but it was a big deal. 
PG-13. It's not PG. And there's reasons why. I mean, a person's heart is ripped out. People are force-fed blood. You're hitting a child. There are some things. I was going to show this to my kids. I was like, nah, I'm not going to. It's too dark. It's too fucking scary. Yeah, here's a whole news broadcast even on it. Violent scenes in two of the most popular summer movies, Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, provoked the new rating. Complaints from parents that some scenes were simply too intense for children persuaded the motion picture industry to come up with PG-13, a warning to be attached to some new films released after July 1st. The president of the Motion Picture Association, Jack Valetti, reluctantly bowed to public pressure. I'm opposed to any, I was opposed to any change in the rating system. I think it's a fragile system and the insertion of more categories is not needed. I thought the PG itself was a sufficient warning, but so many of my peers in the business have taken an opposite view that I decided to lead this movement rather than to follow it. That was a big deal for me. I think that and Ferris Bueller's Day Off were like the first wave of these PG-13 movies. Blind Date might have been as well. I remember what I couldn't see in the theater. I just think this movie is more interesting when he's not trying to give you a repeat. And I feel like Last Crusade, while really fun, is a repeat of Raiders. But it's not. It's like Yeah, it's kind of like a correction, I think, of Temple of Doom. Like, oh, yeah. we went too far. We went too far. George Lucas had the idea, you know, he was thinking Star Wars was light, Empire Strikes Back was dark. This will be Indiana Jones's Empire Strikes Back. He wanted it to be super dark. He wanted it to be, you know, black magic. He wanted to first call the movie Temple of Death. And then they decided that was maybe a little bit too far. You know, he thought that maybe it would be a ghost story in Scotland, but then they made Poltergeist. Then he thought, you know, we have all these ideas about setting something in China because when they first came up with Raiders, there's this great transcript. I think I've read it 900 times where they sit down in Hawaii where they're brainstorming Raiders, come up with a bazillion ideas. And, you know, whatever they didn't use in that one, they actually recycled here, you know, like the train car sequence, like the plane crash with the raft, like, you know, the whole idea of setting the beginning in Shanghai. That was like huge. They wanted to do that from the very, very beginning. But then China said no. So they had to kind of do Macau and then move on. So this film is leftovers in part because it was also rushed because of Spielberg's career taking off so hugely with E.T. And because Lucas was nervous that if they didn't make Temple of Doom straight away, that Spielberg would never have time. So it was sort of like, go, 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 put in everything we can. Spielberg loves goofy, weird, creepy, foodie stuff that makes people giggle. Let's just put in as much of that as we can. You know, here's Spielberg being like, yeah, meals, make it weird. I said, what about a meal of the worst stuff you would never imagine eating as long as you would live? You know, like eating eels and eating bugs and eating brains from monkeys. I think in a way, by doing a kind of dark version of the Indiana Jones series, it gave permission to poke some fun at ourselves and have a scene that was really, you know, toward gross-out comedy. So we had rubber bugs with, you know, don't worry, when you watch the movie, inside of bugs is custard. And inside the monkey brains was custard with raspberry sauce. Uh, do you have anything simple, like soup? And also inside the soup was just rubber eyes that had these little stick stickums, and you could, you, each eye stuck, and Kate was told that she had to really stir the pot to get the eyes to come unglued from the bottom of the pot to flow up to the surface, which was hard to do. Most of the takes, only one eye came up. I mean, shouldn't we be supporting the idea of 
these are the kids that were given full access to make whatever they wanted. And I feel like, you know, watching uh, the Fablemans, you know, it, like you see, like the first thing he directs is that train crash, right? And there's something about that where it's like, oh, this is him not worrying about. So instead of like this idea of like, hey, we make blockbusters, deal with it. I feel like it's more like, I'm not going to put anything on myself. I'm going to make the movie I would like to have seen as a kid. This idea that they just went whole hog. But I don't know if they did. That's the thing. Because what I get a sense of is there is that spirit in this, but they're just too distracted to do it well. That's how I feel this is. Like, I don't feel like this was a passion project. I feel like it was a why not project. And I can't help but sort of resent that. You know, I imagine that even seeing this movie in the 80s, it felt like a throwback. A lot of the people who saw it in the 80s were alive when Gong didn't came out. And they're just like, oh, yeah, it's the way that we feel watching Stranger Things. It's not that interesting by default. Because in order to get jokes in this movie, you're just doing it badly. You know, like, I love Short Round. I love Short Round. I think Short Round is my favorite character in this by far. I think this movie is basically Short Round saves Indiana time and time and time again. You know, there's this whole reading of Raiders of the Lost Ark that we talked about, where like if you pull Indiana Jones out of that movie, actually nothing changes. The Nazis still wind up with the Ark and they kill themselves when they open it. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. This movie hinges on Indiana surviving. Tons of kids are alive because Indiana gets through. Indiana gets through because Short Round saves him. Short Round is wonderful. And one of the funny stories about the making of this is like when the screenwriters, you know, this married couple, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, like they uh, they go back to American Graffiti with, mm-hmm. with George Lucas. They've known him all of that time. They went on, they did Howard the Duck and everything. Uh, when they wrote this script, they actually started it with an introduction of Short Round first. And they gave Short Round all of these great lines. But Spielberg was like, you have to sit down and take this script over to Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford has to read it. I really need Harrison to sign on. Harrison was not wildly enthusiastic about it. And when Harrison Ford started going through the script, whenever he would get to Short Round's lines, he would just say, would Short Round say this or would Indiana say this? And it was his way of poaching all of the good jokes and taking them from Short Round over to himself, which is a little sad. And so in a way, part of what gets me upset about this movie when I watch it is not the ideas. I love the creation of Short Round. Uh, It's the execution again, that Short Round is right here in the Temple of Doom, watching people rip out their hearts. And he doesn't know that he should, like, whisper. Why'd he glow like that? The legend says when the rocks are brought together, the diamonds inside them will glow. Diamonds? Diamonds. Diamonds? Diamonds. And so just to squeeze out a joke, they make him look like an idiot, and they make Willie look like an idiot. And I just don't get why. They don't need it. They don't need it. It's clumsy. Well, let me talk about one thing, and maybe this can start to deconstruct a couple of things you're talking about here. This is arguably the only Indiana Jones movie where Indiana Jones exhibits some sort of growth, right? He is pretty much an action figure that we love And we want to see him be an action figure. But here, we see him fall victim to this cult. We see him give of himself to save these kids. 
we see this connection that he has that's not sexual with a kid and how much that actually means to him. There's something there that is incredibly engaging. Like we actually see an arc. And that's something that we often don't see. I, I would say that you see it in James Gunn's third Guardians really well. Where do our characters grow? And that's a, a also a darker film. There is also this idea that like short round is fully competent. Like, yes, he makes mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes in this movie. You know, they they all shouldn't be doing the thing that they do and then they do it. Like Indiana Jones is so cocky. I, one of the best jokes in the movie is, so long, Lao Che, and he closes the door, and it's Lao Che Air Freight. Like, you know, he is cocky, and he's a dummy, too. Like, why didn't he know that that was Lao Che Air Freight? You know, um, so yes, everyone can make these things, but you see these true moments of connection, you know, short round crying, them playing cards. It, it could have been like Jar Jar Binks, but he's actually funny, endearing, smart. To your point, yes, Willie Scott, people don't like because she's this other thing, but she's less crucial to the story. She's along for the ride. And there's something funny about that, just in the sense that, yes, she's along for the ride and she doesn't become a hero. She doesn't learn how to kick ass, you know? And that to me is also, I like the veracity of that. Like, it's like, yeah, she wouldn't just all of a sudden become a Kung Fu expert. You know, she'll take a shot or she'll do this thing, but she's, you know, they they have baggage. They got to figure out this baggage. And I do think, like, the villain is scary, but also can speak very eloquently, too. Like, you know, it's like there's something about the villain where it's like, this is not a story about a bad guy. I mean, you go a bridge too far when you say that Mola Ram is not a bad guy. Oh, no, he's a, ba- he's, a ba- okay. no, he's a bad guy. I'm just saying he's not like a traditional villain in the sense of, ugh. like, because like he's wearing that skull piece, he's ripping out hearts. Yes, and we should talk about the ripping out the heart. But he takes it off. He's like, oh yeah, no, this is what I want to do, and this is why I'm doing it. Well, he makes a good point when he's like, our stones were stolen by people like you, Indiana yes. Jones. You were caught trying to steal the Shankara stones. There were five stones in the beginning. Over the centuries, they were dispersed by wars, sold off by. Thieves like you. Thieves like me. Ha. Still missing, too. And I must say, one of the better details that I think the script does is that there's five stones, and we're only dealing with three of them. Right. It's not that forced pressure of, oh, no, it's the fifth stone. You know, they're not going to get all five stones by the end of this movie. They're not going to chase after the five stones. It's not a dumb, dumb chase, chase, grab the thing movie. Appreciate that about it. Very much, actually. The MacGuffin isn't a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is real, right? Like It's like it's right there. And and I I think that that's really, that's what I think is kind of interesting, too. So when you're looking at like how they deconstruct a sequel, it's all there. Now, let's just talk about the heart rip, because the heart rip to me was the most traumatic thing I've ever seen. Rewatching it's pretty pretty easy to watch. I agree with you on that, completely. Whoa. Okay, so, you know, this ceremony that you look in on, and this whole movie is like very voyeuristic. We are peering into all these different cultures, whether it is in Shanghai, whether it is in the village, whether it's at Pankok Palace or at this thuggy ceremony. We are we are oftentimes our main characters looking at this world and being like, what is that? Oh my gosh, that's scary. Sometimes Indiana Jones knows, sometimes he doesn't. You know, some people describe 
Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark as like one of the best exposition scenes ever on film when the two uh, guys from the government come to describe the Lost Ark because the way that they shoot that scene, everyone's popping in with information. They're cutting each other off. It's not, it's this idea like of when you write exposition, it should be like the Pope in the pool, right? If the Pope is swimming in the pool, you're so enamored with that, but you're also hearing the exposition so it doesn't just feel like an exposition dump. And I feel like this movie does that as well. Like Indiana Jones is kind of like, he needs... Willie Scott to be like, this is what's going on because if it's Marion, he wouldn't need to tell her. Or when you're hearing the, the whole thing about the thuggy, we're watching that amazing dinner scene. So it's like, yes, we're hearing all this stuff about the thuggy, but at the same time, we're getting all these laughs popped in. Um, so I think he's brilliant at like laying down tracks of exposition, but, um, this moment that we see, I find it to be so disturbing, but not violent. If that makes sense. Is that like, can I, can I walk that line of like seeing someone get their heart ripped out? It doesn't feel like I'm watching Saw as much as it feels like, oh my God, I'm watching this crazy thing. Cause he pulls out the heart and it's so clean, you know, and he pulls it out. The orders are not attached to anything. They're just, you know, it's like, it, it's like he pulled out a model heart. There's no blood. There's no blood. But it, it like, what was your, you know, when did you see this? How, what was your age when you saw it? I saw this at some point on HBO at my grandmother's house, the site of okay. many first viewings of random things. Yeah. And yeah, I don't like to be like, this movie traumatized me, but de- definitely, definitely this one did. This one and the one that people helped me find the other day where like a woman falls into lava. I think it was not just the heart, but slowly lowering that screaming man into lava. Right. Because basically they're saying in this movie, underneath this palace is literal hell you know, guys with satanic horns and magma and flames and everything is red tinted. And to see his sweat beating down his nose while he knows he's going to die is one of the more horrible sights. It's the suspense of that that's worse than anything else. And then in this watch, I'm also appreciating the detail of it, the detail of the magic trick in a way that as Molaram is holding his heart, you watch that the heart starts beating faster in his hand, the more nervous that the guy is, the closer he gets to the fire. That is the kind of detail that I do appreciate. That's like the Spielberg magic. And then when the man is finally engulfed in incinerating flames and barbecued, the heart explodes into fire. Again, it's just like a perfect magic trick. And it's that sort of thing that says like, this isn't just death and violence. This is death, violence, plus magic, plus terrifying magic that you can't understand. Yes. And, and I think that we have the, the voodoo dolls in here, you know, and, and the way that they manipulate Indiana Jones is through the voodoo dolls. It's such an interesting answer. You know, it's such an interesting idea that you have no control over your body like this, like, and that, and I think that's one of the things that this movie is talking about too. And maybe we're talking about two guys who feel out of control. The voodoo doll is making him do something he doesn't want to do. The, the man is being sacrificed, but he doesn't want to sacrifice himself. The children are being taken to do work they don't want to do. It's like the only person that's really there for a reason is Molaram and, and that guy who seems to be like the uh, consigliere. Yeah, the and then yeah. some people also like have a theory that even Chatterlai and Molaram are kind of under the spell of the magic. That like in an early draft of the script, as Molaram is flying off the hurtling off the cliff to his death. Like you can see in his eyes that he had a tiny bit of that yellow spark in there. That means you're possessed. And so it's like, yeah, who possessed Molo Ram and how far does this go back? And like, I was particularly relieved that the Maharaja kid, you know, the one who speaks in that sort of ethereal voice, denying the existence of the thuggies. I thought the stories were told to frighten children. 
Later, I learned the thuggy cult was once real and did of unspeakable things. I'm ashamed of what happened here so many years ago, and I assure you, this will never happen again in my kingdom. I believe the thuggies are the people. As a child, I didn't know if that was a boy or a girl. Well, yeah, it is a girl. And actually, as a callback to our young Frankenstein episode, where I was like, oh, did you know that that know-it-all kid who's like interrogating uh, poor Jean at the beginning of the film is actually the voice of the Smurf's brainy Smurf? Yes. The actress who voices the Maharaja is actually also a Smurf character. Uh, She's Denisa, Gargamel's niece. You can hear her here. I've never been in this forest before. That's why I've lost my way back to my Uncle Gargamel's house. Gargamel is your uncle? Well, kinda. Why, Pappy Gargamel's kinda like my Pappy. Love that. Sorry, I gotta tell you my Smurfs. I gotta tell you my Smurfs. I but love like, that you do. It, yeah, I forgot that like the Maharaja was brainwashed by the liquid as well. Because yeah. I was like, why is this Maharaja so mean? You know, I spent a lot of this movie being like, isn't there anything good about India? Because this movie does not honestly make it look like there's anything good about India. You know, that even like the Maharaja is a killer child who's like delighting in stabbing Indiana Jones. And so when I realized that at least the Maharaja is drugged, I was like, thank God, there's something nice about India. Look, I think that we're also getting a very interesting point of view of India. This is not about like they're going to a major city. They you know, they end up on a riverbank in a small village and then they go to a a castle that was now or had been for years vacant, right? And, you know, I love that the the rescuers at the end, the team that saves them are these like British, you know, the British come to save the day at the end. It's basically like RRR before the guy stops being a double agent. Yes, exactly. And I mean, there's like readings of this that I will embrace at face value as best I can from like the Indian actors who are in the film, because I believe they definitely should get a say in how the film is viewed. You know, like Roshan Seth, he said, you know, I wasn't really able to deliver the role of Chatterlai. That's the prime Mm -hmm. minister. But I do have to say this. Indian people are very embarrassed when they see one of their own playing roles like that. But Stephen intended it as a joke. The joke being that the Indians were so fucking smart that they knew all Westerners think that Indians eat cockroaches So they served them what they expected. The joke was too subtle for that film. And I really sat with that because I was like, I want to believe you on this. And then I was like, but is it a joke when that dude's loving the taste of bugs so much that he's like chowing down and then takes like a really self-satisfied burp? You're not eating. I had bugs for lunch. (laughs) Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. And that burp kind of means I can't go all the way there with that as much as I wish I could. Well, I mean, he's loving everything that he's eating. And again, not to be like the staunchest defender of it. I I think that there's sloppiness here. I think that there's sloppiness, but it's a big old goofy action movie. Like this is like a bit like, and I'm not saying that to like erase anything, but I'm also saying we don't have to hold it to that high of a standard. This is an homage of movie serials that, also are a little janky. And I think what they do here is they capture every element of it. It's humor. It's disgust. It's it's all the emotions of Inside Out. Uh, you know, it's joy. We're, we're seeing it all. It is disgust, actually. Willie is like the living embodiment of disgust. She is. I mean, there, there it is. 
This is an homage to something that has been done. I think they execute it really well. I think that they execute it really well. And I think, you know, Raiders is a fun action movie that is really led by a great lead. I think he's better in this. I think Indiana Jones is more interesting in this because he is actually more of a cad. There's an energy here of an Indiana Jones before we get to meet him in Raiders, which I like. I think from an acting standpoint, he's in better shape. He looks better. I don't know. I I even think the music is better in this one. I just think everything is kind of firing on full thrusters and the story is dark. And I think that if you put some of these elements in a lighter story, I think everyone would be going nuts for it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a grace to that first Raiders performance. I mean, Raiders Mm -hmm. of Lost Ark is one of the few films that I think is just about perfect. Mm -hmm. And there's a delicacy and like a comic humor to the way that that Indiana Jones moves in that movie that he just physically can't do here because he can't move. You know, he really can't move. He's like lying on wait, his wait, back. But he's, he he got that later in the film. Yeah, but it's like extending through most of it. I mean, he's like, really? he's out for tons. Most of this, not most, but a lot of this movie is shot with a stunt double. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is Harrison Ford is fine. He feels great. His enzyme... Papaya treatment worked fantastically well, and he's uh, doing exercises and getting back into shape. And the bad news is he needs until August 8th to get back into shape. Harrison had this very controversial papaya enzyme surgery performed on his back, thank God, successfully and permanently. And I was left in London for three weeks with a double, stuntman Vic Armstrong. So I shot the whole fight on the big crusher on the conveyor belt with Vic Armstrong. That wasn't storyboard. That was pretty much shot. Like I shot the flying wing in the first Raiders, I just pretty much made it up as I went along. And Vic and I shot most of that scene. And then when Harrison came back six weeks later, I just plugged in Harrison's close-ups. I mean, a lot of this movie is stunt doubles. And so I don't get that pleasure that I like of like the airplane fight, for example, in Raiders, where you see him kind of like take little tentative moves jump back, there's like a grace to it that I feel like is really lacking here. Well, you know, by the way, you know how he herniated his disc. It wasn't through like a giant action sequence either. It was like, yes, he was doing those fights, but he also heard it from riding on the elephants. I mean, because you have to straddle it. So those are wide. Elephants are huge. Do you remember? There's one moment that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm surprised he didn't get more hurt. Like when he goes in to grab his hat with his hand, like that moment, it's so close. It's so close. I mean, you know, and, and that's all practical. Like maybe that isn't, you know, super heavy, but that's really the way you watch the timing of that is pretty amazing. Like he's somebody who does put his his body on the line there. I, I thought he was injured a little bit later. Well, because they shoot so much of it out of order, but like so much of the callbacks to the first film are what I like about it. You know, when there's that little callback to the um, duel that he has in the first movie where there's like the guy with the sword and he just shoots him. And then here he comes up and there's the guy with the two swords and like Spielberg knows that everybody in the audience is going to go, oh, yes. and he's going to shoot the two swords, but then he just doesn't have his gun on him. Like that is beautiful. I love that moment so much. Again, I think that that's like, I, like that's why I do love what this movie does as far as sequels. This kind of falls in the category to me of Lethal Weapon 2, right? Lethal Weapon 1, which I love, is a dark kind of police film, like a movie that was made of the time, right? And Lethal Weapon 2 is like, and now we're going to be kind of a comedy. Like, we're going to really push some levers here. Not saying that the same thing, but 
stylistically, Richard Donner does the same thing. He goes, let me, let me make this more fun for myself. Let me not figure out a way to make Mel Gibson depressed again. Now, yes, in Lethal Weapon 2, I'm going to spoil it for you. They do kill his girlfriend, you know, who he is with, Patty Kensett. I don't know how to remember that name. But I think it's a sign of a good filmmaker that kind of evolves their style. I think that James Gunn has done that with the Guardians movies as well. It's like, how do I continue a story but give you something new to to do? And I feel like it's enough callbacks. It's enough fun. It's aware of what it's trying to do. If it was funny, then yes. But it just doesn't work. I mean, even Spielberg sounds, when you hear interviews from him on the set, like he doesn't have a handle on the movie. He really doesn't sound like he has a handle on what he's trying to do. Like, here is him explaining why he hasn't storyboarded this movie to the same extent that he did Raiders. I didn't do as many storyboards on Temple of Doom as I did on Raiders. Part of that was because I was not exactly secure with the story. And I had, I had always had some problems with the darkness. And I wasn't. I, I thought maybe I should... Uh, I, I, need, I needed to be more spontaneous to try to put more humor in where it needed humor. <laughs> All the big set pieces I storyboarded, but some of the in-between action fights, I just sort of left it to all of our first impressions, seeing the set for the first time and getting ideas and just figuring it out. I mean, the idea that, like, he's just trying to figure out moments where he can insert lightness where he can. You know, the kind of the the desperation of that. I think you feel that the mining car has no brake and the brake has been snapped off. You know, it's weird that this movie costs so much more money and yet looks a little cheaper to me. It does look cheaper. I noticed that. That, The diamond looks really cheap that she's fighting for in the beginning. The musical number, which you know that I am primed to love. It's choreographed by Danny Daniels, who did Pennies from Heaven, one of my favorite movies, came out a few years ahead of this. It's got his idea of doing a Busby Berkeley musical, but the background is pretty ugly and none of it actually looks as glamorous as I know that Danny Daniels can do. I was looking at it and I was like wondering, I was like, what? why does this look a little shittier? And I was like, yeah. the sets look a little shitty. I honestly think that Harrison Ford's injury really threw a lot of things out of whack. That they had to like rip up and reorganize the shooting schedule, figure out how to film things on the fly, figure out what they could film without him in it. And I think it just suffered from that. I think it feels really, really rushed. And so that's just it. It's like, I don't want to tone police or act like I discovered that this movie is problematic because blah, blah, blah. We have enough of that in this world. And people were like mad about that at the time, you know? And I feel genuinely sad and supportive of the cast. They've had to spend like the last decades after this movie came out defending it. You know, like Amrish Puri, who played Molaram, you know, he wrote a whole autobiography about this. Um, well, about his life, because he's a major movie star in India. And when he got to the part about Temple of Doom, he was like, look, it was a chance of a lifetime working with Spielberg. I don't regret it even for a moment. I don't think I did anything na- anti-national. It's really foolish to take it so seriously and get worked up over it. Fantasies are fantasies. I know we are sensitive about our cultural identity, but we do this to ourselves in our own films. It's only when some foreign director does it that we start cribbing. You know, And by that, he's even alluding to the fact that this film was not allowed to be shot in India after they read the script and not allowed to be shown in India when it was made. I also, by the way, went on like a whole tear about Short Round, you know, because like Short Round, I think he gives his name in the film. I can't tell. You know, there's that moment when they're sitting down with the villagers and he's like, bad things are coming. And then a beat later when they learn about the kidnapped kids, he's like, I was right. I think as he says, I was right. He gives his name. Maybe. What evil? I can't tell. I went down a lot of yeah. I don't think you did. This. It's a little weird, but.
But like where his name actually comes from is it's like the third time a character in these movies was named after a dog. You know, Indiana named after a dog. Willie supposedly named after a dog. Uh, Short Round is named after the screenwriter's dog, named after the Cats and Hikes dog. Um, And they named their dog after a movie called The Steel Helmet, which has a character who reluctantly, I suppose, adopts a Korean refugee and gives him the name Short Round. You can hear that here. What's that paper on your back for? Prayer to Buddha, asking him to heal me if I'm wounded. Oh, yeah? Thought you forgot to take out the price tag. There. Let's go short round. What is short round? It's a bullet that don't go all the way, and that's you, bud. You're not going all the way with me. Just till we meet some goop, some South Koreans will take you off my neck. That backstory is basically kind of the backstory that Indiana Jones gives when he's asked in this movie, like, how did you meet Short Round? Where did you find your uh, little bodyguard? I didn't find him. I caught him. What? Shorty's family were killed when the Japanese bombed Shanghai. He's been living on the streets since he was four. I caught him trying to pick my pocket. Didn't I, Short Stuff? The biggest trouble with her is the noise. So I think they just took basically that whole character and put him in here and were able to, I think, rely on the just amazing chemistry of Ki Hoi Kwan to make that character so great. He just seems so great the way he's like smiling and full of energy and thinking and reactive. He is so present in this movie. He doesn't feel overwhelmed by it at all. No, I mean, you know, the way they found him, too, was they put out a, a casting call to elementary schools to find like a young Asian actor. And uh, Quan arrived with his brother, uh, not to audition, but just to be there for like moral support. And the casting director was like, oh, I like you um, because he actually spent his entire time giving like his brother like notes. Um, and Spielberg liked his personality and Harrison Ford and him improvised the scene where Short Round accuses Indy of cheating during a card game. And he won that role over like 6,000 auditions. I just want to say, one more thing to the jury, the movie jury out there that's that's listening to your very cogent argument. Being depressed, being upset, being at odds with yourself, I think often creates very good art. I also think it's like looking at a diary. And when you look at it, you're like, oh, why did I do that? I must have been angry. I must have been really fucked up in that moment. And I could see this movie like pinching that nerve for Spielberg and Lucas. You know, that this is them wearing this film on their sleeve, going by their gut, not storyboarding anything. But what you see here is, I think, a more grounded version of Indiana Jones going into hell and coming back out the other side a better man. And that's what these guys were going through. They lived a perfect life in a great tuxedo, very James Bond, everything was going great. Then one thing messed up and then another thing messed up. And then we get this avalanche of bad things. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And they're running, they're running and they're running so much so that they go through hell to come back out as better versions of themselves. And on the way there, they reference, like you can't tell me that when you watch that mine car scene, you don't see the general in that. You see these Yeah, with ideas. the big wooden plank in front of the train car. Yeah. Yes. It's like there is so much here that I feel like is really, really wonderful. It's hard because anything that's not Raiders 
is hard to look at. And I think you can say that for Last Crusade. There's a lot of people who don't like Last Crusade, a lot of people who don't like Crystal Skull for good reason. Um, but when you watch like, the first hour of Crystal Skull is not bad at all. Um, but I think the reason why people don't like those movies, I think the reason why Ghostbusters, you know, has such bad rap, um, you know, I think Afterlife people liked, I'm just saying, but like even the female Ghostbusters, um, they want to see the first movie again, and you'll never see that first movie again. And I think that that is important to talk about when you talk about any sequel. It's hard. You're always looking at a sequel with the eyes of what we know and what we want to see. And I think these guys did a really good job of challenging themselves. I will tell you, Amy, as someone who did own the novelization and still do, I have a collection of movie novelizations in my office. Um, I just looked it up. And Short Round's name is Wan Lee. Well, so then what is he saying there? And also the Jaws novelization is completely insane. Oh, the Back to the Future novelization is amazing. And there's actually a book written about how crazy the Back to the Future novelization is. <laughs> it's very, very good. But Amy, I did enjoy this conversation because, you know, look, I there's something fun about arguing with you about a movie that is not as important in a way, in a way, you know what I'm saying? It's like, like, who cares if, if you like this movie, you don't like this movie. Goodfellas, people are going to get all rang, you know, upset about, but I think that there is fun in really dissecting what we both liked and what we didn't like. I thought I was getting ready last night when I watched this movie to come in here and be like, let's rip it. Let's rip it to shreds. And I was so pleasantly surprised. I embrace that. You know, we love what we love. I can't turn off a switch that makes me love Gone with the Wind. What are we going to do, man? Look, Amy, you can't, you can't make me not <laughs> yeah. order two days ago a short round action figure, which comes out this July. Uh, and I, I look at all these Indiana Jones toys under my bed right now, unbuilt, is uh, a Raiders of the Lost Ark Lego. Uh, when I was a kid, one of the saddest things to me was I could never find the short round action figure. They made amazing action figures for Temple of Doom. And I had the Mola Ram and I had the Indiana Jones with the whip arm. It was awesome. Hat came off. And short round was on the back, but I don't think they were successful enough uh, to sell like Raiders figures. And they never made a short round. I never could find a short round. I'm so upset that I could never find a short round. And if eBay was around, it would have been so much better. But I made my dad go to every toy store in the world to find this short round action figure. I never found it. And I just bought one the other day. All these new toys coming out are great. Uh, I, do, I love them. I love them to pieces. Uh, and this movie, oddly, for as much as I didn't think I like it, I had the record that you would play and turn the pages of a book while you listen to it. Like I had, I, this movie is a part of me. The 1999 version of this movie was in my house. It was, it was something I watched so much and I watched it because it was titillating as much as it was fun to watch. And you know, uh, and I don't like you. Good. Good. Why does he say good to two times? I don't know. Is it just ADR? Is it a mistake? Or is he just responding to each complaint individually, which I think is an amazing character choice. Well, I don't like getting what I don't like this. And I don't like you. Good. Good. Paul. Yes. If you were single. Yes. Back in the day before you met your lovely love of your life and you went on a date with Willie, mm -hmm. would you have a second date? Well, it depends what Willie I'm getting. 
The Willie that we know on screen. The Willie well, that we the know will, on screen. The Willie in Even Shanghai. The, the Willie in Shanghai I don't think I'm interested in. But the Willie that... I don't know. The Willie in Shanghai, no. Would you adopt Short Round? I mean, it's a big... It's a big obligation, a big responsibility. I think he puts his child in a, a lot of risky situations. Uh, you know, I, I think I would retire uh, from being an adventurer if I adopted short round. Uh, you know, look, I'm not trying to be Indiana Jones. I'm trying to live uh, vicariously through him. I don't want to adopt a child. Well, look, I would adopt a child because I'm not an adventurer. I just don't think that he's a great dad. And obviously he learned something because he he got him somewhere. Short round went somewhere. Short round went to a family. That or the Nazis got him. We don't know. Maybe short round was killed in an adventure. You know, I don't really care about seeing almost any other prequel or sequel for pretty much any other property that exists right now. But I would watch a what happened to short round after this movie movie. Oh, well, there was a series that somebody wanted to do on Disney Plus. They had all the storyboards out there, like a short round series. Like what happened to short round as like a 20, it's like young Indiana Jones Chronicles, but like short round Chronicles. Uh, And I think that would be really fun because you would imagine that, you know, the way the short round was with Indy, he would become the next adventurer. Like Indy would show him the ropes. Yeah. I'd be very curious about the future of short round. I would kind of want to see him at this age being a young kid still, but I'm open. All right, Amy. Next week, we are doing something a little bit differently. You might have noticed on social media, on the Discord, we have been asking you to vote, to pick your favorite films, movies that you want on our show, because we are giving you the power to control us for our anniversary month. You get to pick all the films. And let me tell you, the votes are in. And I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, it has been exciting watching votes go up and down, up and down. For like weeks now, I've been like, oh, we're going to do that one. Oh, we're not. Oh, we're going to do that one. Oh, we're not. But we do finally have our final four. Yes, we have our final four. And they just came down to two comedies and two dramas. We did not gild the lily here. That is the actual real results. And we'll be starting off our listener appreciation month, our fifth year anniversary month with a film that we've talked about plenty on the show. A movie that I'm surprised we haven't done it yet. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I love this movie. Great choice. Oh, Paul, the way that you talk about Temple of Doom is the way that I think about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This movie (laughs) is me. This movie is my soul. I am so excited. And it is facing off against another comedy in our comedy bracket that absolutely knocked me to the floor and exploded my corpse into a million pieces. I was like, whoa, this film is not just your other top comedy but is the number one vote-getter across every other movie that we put up for consideration. I still can't quite believe it, but y'all called it Hot Fuzz. I am so psyched that Hot Fuzz got on this list. I'm a huge Shaun of the Dead fan, but my heart is with Michael Bay. And to have Hot Fuzz on this list is truly a treat for me. Uh, But guess what? We're not just doing comedies. We're not just doing action movies. We're going all over the gamut. And I got to say, there was a lot of PDA for PTA because our third pick is There Will Be Blood. Y'all are in the mood for something prestigious. And next to There Will Be Blood, a movie that I think has a very large place in our pop culture, is a movie that I'm kind of surprised at how much it's dropped out of our pop culture canon But I guess it's back, baby, because y'all really voted for it in numbers. It is Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. And here's the thing. You picked four great movies. We are in sync with you. You are in sync with us. And we want to hear from you. We want to hear why you love these movies. So 
keep on checking out our social media, us on the Discord, on Instagram, and we want you to record a little something. Tell us why these movies are important to you. What makes these movies special? You'll see ways to participate, and we'll incorporate all of those into our actual episodes. I'm so excited for this. And Amy, let's get this five-year anniversary started with the trailer for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Touchstone Pictures presents Eddie, Jessica, and Roger. A man, a woman, a rabbit in a triangle of trouble. Hide me, Eddie! <laughs> Roger's wanted for murder. Jessica's wanted by Eddie. Eddie's wanted by Roger. Jessica! Daddy! Oh, honey bunny. It's the greatest adventure a man, a woman, and a rabbit ever had. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a Steven Spielberg presentation, a Robert Zemeckis film. The story of greed, sex, and murder. Rated PG. Starts Wednesday, June 22nd at a theater near you. You can get Who Framed Roger Rabbit on Disney Plus if you have it, or you can look at other streaming services and make sure you always check out your local public library, which gives you these movies for free. So no complaints there. Um, Amy, happy five-year anniversary. What a great start next week. I can't wait to get into it with you. Oh, Paul, I think that the five-year anniversary is supposed to be like wood, but this is much better than anything, Twiggy. (laughs) Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous all designed by kim troxel at podswag.com just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there you can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on super premium and for the official api that's the paul and amy institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show you can head on over to unspooledpod.com 